0: Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then also into Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5, for our scripture readings today. We are continuing, we're week 11 now in our series on the law of God, a study of the Ten Commandments in the Christian life. And today we are at the Sixth Commandment, and uh, let's do our catechism questions. We'll do Catechism questions 72, 73, and 74 today, which is dealing with the Sixth Commandment. And so if you would um, say the answer along with me, the question is... I'm losing my eyesight. I can't see very well. Um, The question is, question 72, what is the Sixth Commandment? And we would say, the Sixth Sixth Commandment commandment is. is... thou shalt not kill. Okay, I put a little asterisk there because I'm going to address that a little bit in, our, uh, in the message. Question 73, what is required in the Sixth Commandment? And we say, the Sixth, sixth Commandment requireth all lawful endeavors, endeavors to preserve our, our own life and the life of others. And question 74, what is forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? We say, the sixth commandment absolutely forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. And for our scripture reading this morning, it will be Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. And if you want to only turn to one of those passages, I would turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21-21 through 26. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, is, uh, is actually only two words in the Hebrew, very short. We have translate it in English as, in the ESV here, you shall not murder. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17, says likewise, you shall not murder. And in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21 through 26, I encourage you to follow along as I read. These are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whether insults, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, having heard your word now, we pray that in these next few moments you will help us to understand your will um, concerning this, your moral law, as we've come to now the sixth commandment. And we pray here in our time together uh, that you would teach us, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the wonderful things that you have for us in your word. And so we give you all thanks and praise for this opportunity, and it is in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. So as you notice there, in the, uh, there was uh, this difference between what was cited in our catechism question and what we read in our ESV translation here. As I noted there, it's just two, two Hebrew words, and it's, you shall not uh, murder. Or lo tirzak, so if we wanted to give you Hebrew. Um, Janet told me not to mention that we talked about the Hebrew and make you say the uh, Hebrew words. She told me not to bring that up today, um, so I won't. Um, but I'll make you say this Hebrew word, and it's ratzak. Let me hear you say ratzak. Ratzak. And so I think there's a lot of misunderstanding that that tends to come with the older translation that's in the King James, because that's how the King James would translate this word, thou shalt not kill. And it was mistaken to mean, or later generations would mistake this to mean, that it would be forbidding the taking of any life at any time uh, or at any way at all. And so this this morning, I want to begin by looking at this sixth commandment here and kind of begin with a little bit of an explanation for why it is that we have in the newer translations, why it says you shall not murder, because that that Hebrew verb that I just had you say is kind of the generic term for homicide. It refers to the, the premeditated or the accidental taking of a life of another human being or as some of the, the lexicons and dictionaries would say, it includes the unauthorized killing. And the key there is unauthorized. Unauthorized. So the word kill is, is not the best or most accurate term. That's The technical meaning here is for murder. And so I want to begin a little bit by clarifying a few things on what the sixth commandment does not mean before we get to Understanding what it does mean and then to seeing how Jesus expands it for us in the New Testament. It cannot be taken to mean no taking of any human life at all and there's several reasons why. Mainly because the Bible does authorize on occasions the taking of life in certain circumstances. The sixth commandment does not pl- apply for instance Two slaughtering of animals. There are some who would take that verse, and I've heard this, you know, many of you are probably like, I don't I don't understand that, but there are some that would understand this that you should not take any kind of life whatsoever. Uh, but this is pretty easily refuted because um, all throughout the Old Testament, even in the context of this book of Exodus, you have the prescription for the slaughtering of animals. Indeed, the commandment here is given on Mount Sinai after the Lord has just brought his people out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. And how did he do that on the last plague? He had them slaughter a a one-year-old or younger lamb and apply the blood on its doorposts. And when when the angel would pass over and he would see the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over that house and the judgment would not come to their house. You go to later books and there's prescriptions all through Leviticus. There's kind of, we went through, it's been a couple of years now where we went through a a teaching series in Leviticus. And I remember there there was a lot of blood in that book. A lot of animal blood. So it does not include to this, it does not apply to the slaughtering of animals. Um, Here's what else it does not apply to. It does not apply to capital punishment. We saw this even last week in a couple of the examples for those who would speak curses upon their parents or would strike their parents. And we mentioned how serious that is to dishonor your parents in such a way like that, that the consequence for Israel under that old covenant was that that was that incurred the death penalty. Similarly, for false prophets or sexual deviance in ancient Israel time, all of those were worthy of capital punishment It was not just permitted, it was actually even commanded. Now, there are some today um, who, what we call progressive Christians, who would argue against capital punishment. And I've I've heard this quite frequently in my past church associations, and that we'd have some that would argue against this on the principle of the Latin phrase imago dei, which means in the image of God. And they would make the case that it's because every person is made in the image of God that we should not take their life, even on the case for capital punishment, even if they are guilty for murder. The issue is is that that is precisely the reason why the Old Testament gives the principle for capital punishment being applied. Let me give you an example here from Genesis chapter 9. Verses 5 and 6, where the Lord says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. For his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And then he gives the principle here. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Similarly, and, and so the language here is um, the language here of shedding the blood of the, of the man. This is in reference to murder. Whoever sheds the blood of man, this is the, the phrase for murder, wanton disregard for human life. Leviticus gives the explanation for this connection between this blood of the flesh Uh, And I think this is important as well for Leviticus chapter 17, verses 11 through 14. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now here he's referring to the life of the creature, and whether it was a bull or a lamb or a goat, the blood, that's what it's referring to here. It's the The killing of the animal, then taking its blood. And it's saying the life of the flesh is in its blood. Verse 14, for the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is in its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So now how this applies back to the Genesis passage is whoever sheds the blood of man is basically killing whoever's murdering a man. The consequence will be for by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So the, the irony here is that the rationale or the basis for this capital punishment is not that it goes against the imago day? It's the 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 imago day is the basis for why it should be applied. In other words, the argument for the death penalty for murder is based on the imago day. The sanctity of life is not an argument against capital punishment; rather, it's precisely the argument for capital punishment. But at this point, it's key to note the difference between, and again, going back to this word, ratzak, the difference between unpremeditated and premeditated murder. Or in today's kind of legal things, you'd hear of the various degrees of murder or voluntary manslaughter or even involuntary manslaughter, I believe, in some states. The Bible makes that distinction. makes a distinction between unpremeditated murder and the consequence that would come for that in, in Israel's history, there would be cities of refuge where people could go. But in, uh, but in premeditated murder, what we would call first degree more murder, that would incur the death penalty. So the sixth commandment does not apply to the slaughtering of animals. It does not apply to capital punishment And here's the third one, is that it does not apply to killing in war. In the Old Testament, killing in war was permitted if necessary. So this commandment here could not be applied to the unfortunate circumstance of life needing to be taken in war. And Christian thinkers throughout the centuries have thought long and hard about how it is that we are to understand the Christian and its role with the state and also in engaging in war. Now, let me give you, there's a couple of, uh, and many Christians hold to this view. They would tend to to hold to pacifistic views that would say, well, didn't Jesus teach us to turn the other cheek, for instance? Or Jesus taught us that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus uh, refused the power of the sword. When rebuking Peter, remember, to advance his kingdom. But I would say that there's some really good counter arguments to those. One, Jesus' teaching on turning the other cheek was a guide for individual contact, not, not the conduct for governments or nations. The command to love one's neighbor is consistent with going to war to protect that neighbor. And, of course, we might agree that it's never right to use military force to advance the gospel in that sense. As a matter of fact, so as I said, Christian thinkers throughout throughout centuries have thought through long and hard about these things. And it's their, their thoughts on this is referred to as just war theory. Perhaps you've heard of this. And so let me give you kind of some of the principles. And I'm getting some of these from um, from Wayne Grudem, he summarized these, I think, quite well in his book on politics and ethics. He uh, breaks this down into decisions that need to be made uh, before going to war and then also some principles on how it needs to be conducted afterwards. So let me just kind of run through some of these here. Here's some pre-war considerations. First, does going to war, which would entail then taking the life of others, is there a just cause? Meaning, is there a good reason for going to war? Is there a morally right reason for going to war? Such as defending a nation. That's one of the considerations that needs to be made. Second, is is this being conducted under a competent authority? So is this just being declared by a renegade band within a nation or by a, a recognized com, uh, competent authority like a nation? That's one of the things to to consider. I often wonder if the Revolutionary War would actually ever even happen, depending on how you answered that. But it's a consideration. Here's the third consideration, comparative justice. Uh, Is it clear that the actions of the enemy are morally wrong? And that the motives and actions of one's own nation in going to war are morally acceptable? Do you have the right intention Is it to protect justice and to protect righteousness? Or is it to rob and pillage and destroy another nation? Is it a last resort? Are all other reasonable means, have they all been uh, tried and exhausted? Or what's the probability of success? Jesus tells a parable, uses the parable, but the soldier Counting the cost before going to war. What's the probability of success in doing it? What's the proportionality of projected results? Will the good results that result from the loss and death and destruction, will the good results be significantly greater than the harm and loss that will come from pursuing war? And what's, and lastly, what's the right spirit? Is it undertaken with great reluctance? or even with sorrow, that harm needs to come to another person. And then, of course, there's principles once war is conducted. How should a war be fought? Is there proportionality in the use of force? There's no greater destruction that needs to be caused other than what's necessary to win. Or two, what's the discrimination between combatants and non-combatants? Or three, the avoidance of, of evil means. If you capture defeated enemies, how do you treat them? Do you treat them with justice and compassion? Do you, do you spare their life? And lastly, is it done in good faith? Is there a genuine desire for peace or restoration with the other nations? These, are, I think, are very helpful things, and this is altogether taken to be this. Uh, what I would say is the Christian understanding of how, how warfare should be fought. It's the just war theory. And in such a cases where it is permissible then to go to war, and when you're put in a situation where you now are, are thrust into the circumstance where you need to take a, another human life, that this would be something that would be an exception to what's understood here in the sixth commandment. Indeed, our confessional statement or the, the Second London Baptist Confession of Statement has an entire chapter on what's the Christian role in civil relationship with civil authorities. Can Christians serve in government, for instance? What's our role with the civil magistrates? And in paragraph two, it uh, and, and this goes counter to what was of an influential group at the time, and a group that that the writers of this confession wanted to distance themselves from, and that would be the Anabaptists, who were very pacifist, who who didn't think that Christians had a place in civil society as in terms of civil government at all. And matter of fact, forbid it. They're writing in response to that, and they say this: It is lawful. Contrary to the Anabaptists, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of the magistrate when called thereunto in the management whereof as they ought especially to maintain justice and peace according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth. So in other words, yes, Christians can indeed; they probably should be active in their civic government. And then they extend that principle here. So for that end, they may lawfully now, under the new covenant, wage war upon just and necessary conditions. So this does not include, the sixth commandment does not apply to the killing in war, and it does not apply to self-defense. Indeed, going back to the, some of the arguments from pacifists like the Anabaptists, that Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek. He taught us you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And indeed that is true. But if I could use maybe as an, as an example or an illustration, I believe that, that this is not applying to self-defense, defending of yourself or defending of your loved ones or your neighbor if you just were to stand by and do nothing when their life is at risk. So who would I want, I've I've said this before, we've talked about this sometime at home group, who would I want to have as my next door neighbor? We have just some neighbors that moved next door and across the street from us. And you ever had new neighbors that move in and you're like, wonder what they're like? You know, are they gonna have kids your kid's age? Are they gonna have a dog? Is your dog gonna scare their kids? You know, that's the concerns that I have. What's it like, what, what kind of neighbor would you want? And I remember we were talking one time and I we were talking about this very issue and I, I said, who would I want as my neighbor if I wasn't home and something was a, a, a someone or some persons were attempting to harm my family? Would I rather my next door neighbor um, be an Anabaptist or would I rather my next door neighbor be a pagan who rightly understood the moral imperative for protecting human life? I believe it's a misguided piety of those who would say that it's more closely following the teachings of Jesus to see harm being done to another person, evil being per- perpetrated on another person, and you to stand by and doing it. So I believe the sixth commandment here is does not apply to this the rightful, just use of self-defense. So that is what this commandment then is, is not dealing with. But what does it deal with? Well, it's talking about murder, taking human life. Now, I want to go to what Jesus has to say about this, as we had in our reading and the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verses 20, verse 21. And let's see if I have that scripture here on the screen. Again, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. Now, what is Jesus doing here in this Ten Commandments? Or what is he doing here in his explanation or expansion of the Ten Commandments or some of the other Jewish laws that they were uh, saying at the time? He's, he's getting to really the heart of the matter. He's actually dealing with something here that can't really be examined in a human court. He's addressing this legalistic interpretation of that commandment, which restricts its application only to the literal sense, only in rejecting, only in the literal sense of of actually taking a human life. In other words, it was common maybe for those uh, in Judaism of his day that Jesus was addressing to say, hey, if I just refrain from actually taking the life of another person, I'm okay. And Jesus is here saying, I want want you to get to the truth of what is in your heart behind what causes murders to take place. And that is the hatred that you would have. Notice he gives three parallel statements here. And um, these are basically, he's just making the same point in different ways. We shouldn't understand these as three different types of sins that he's applying here. He's dealing with hatred or anger with his brother. He says they'll be liable to judgment. He's dealing with the moral degradation that you do in your heart toward another person, or using insulting language. Whoever says, you fool, okay? Now, and I want to point out that's it's not the use of the word fool by itself, because sometimes... That is appropriate. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself uses it. He says at the end of Matthew, he says, you blind fools, talking to the Pharisees of his day. He uses the exact same word. And indeed, his brother, James, in James chapter um, 2, see if I have this. No, don't have it on there. James chapter 2, he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, the concern here is that the such things that fly out of our mouths in anger, it's a sign of our hatred toward our fellow man. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's wondering, he's concerned about our heart, the heart that would be behind and murder. And even if you refrain from taking a human life, if you, uh, if you still are manifesting that anger and hatred for them, that's the issue he's getting at. For Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or as James chapter 3 says, with it, he's referring to our mouths, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse other people who are made in the likeness of God. He's using the exact same reference to Genesis here about the Imago Dei. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Brother, these things ought not to be so. So what's Jesus doing here? What's his real meaning here of this sixth commandment? He's getting to the heart that would be behind murder. And in a way, it's an indictment of the Pharisaical legalism, the legalism of the Pharisees. Sometimes we think of legalism as man-made rules that are stricter than what God intends. You could think of many examples of the Pharisees uh, doing that. Jesus saying, you bind these people up with these heavy burdens that they cannot bear. So sometimes we think of these Pharisaical rules as being stricter than what God commands. But in some cases, the Pharisees' legalism actually worked the other way around. It was attempting to make less strict than what God intended. And that's what Jesus is exposing here. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says Jesus here is expanding the sixth commandment. Many thought they kept this part of God's law so long as they did not commit actual murder. The Lord Jesus shows that its requirements go much further than this. It condemns all angry and passionate language and especially when used without a cause. Let us mark this well. We may be perfectly innocent of taking life away and yet be guilty of Of breaking the sixth commandment. So the question is. For us. Is to understand here. What Jesus has meant. It's his expansion here. Of the the intent behind this commandment. If you have refrained from murdering somebody. Good. But. Do you still have hatred in your heart? Paul, writing to the Galatians, lists some of the vices of the life that we have without the Spirit. says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, rivalries, dissensions, divisions... Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. Indeed, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to Titus, in the what I think are some of my favorite. Verses that declare the the good news of the gospel and the mercy that we have and the loving kindness of our God. It tells us that we are freed. We have been freed and forgiven for those those types of things. Apostle Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish. Again, talking about their pre-conversion life. We were once foolish, disobedient, led away to various passions own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I love that passage there for what it says to the to the church or to Titus there and this this. Declaration of the forgiveness and the grace and the restoral that we the restoration we have, when in the very beginning he says that this is how you once were. You were foolish, disobedient, slaves to various passions, hated by others, and hating one another. Murder. And yet, even then, forgiveness is available through Christ. King David was a murderer. 2 Samuel, chapter 11, the whole incident with with Bathsheba and, and her wife Uriah. Now, did David actually use the arrow that killed him? No, he just commanded that the soldiers retreat, leave him exposed out there in the battle. But it's interesting, in the next chapter, when the prophet Nathan goes to issue his indictment to David... He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? He says, and it's emphatically, you struck down Uriah with the sword and has taken his wife as your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. He says, you did it. You may not have been there, but you did it. And yet with David, there was forgiveness. Well, what about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul, likewise, was a murderer. We're introduced to the Apostle Paul with the stoning of Stephen for testifying to the truth about Christ and calling the Jews of that day to repent of their sins. And indeed, they brought Stephen out and charged him with blasphemy and stoned him with stones. And in the middle of that, as Stephen is, is being stoned to death, and it says, and they took their coats off and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. He was there giving approval to murder a Christian For just being a Christian. And what happened with Paul? There was forgiveness. The Lord Jesus appears to Paul. As he's going to Damascus actually to commit more murder. And the Lord Jesus interrupts him on the road to Emmaus blinds him and he says, and I'm going to show you how much work you're going to do for me to testify. The Apostle Paul puts it later in life this way, that he would consider his life worth nothing if he would only finish the race to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He would write of himself and speak of himself as being the chief among all sinners. Because he knew he too was a murderer unjustly taking a human, other human life. But with him, there is forgiveness. Friends, the question is, for us, is do you have hatred? You could evaluate your heart right now. Do you have hatred in your heart? Is there a group or is there an individual? Is there someone that you just need to that you need to forgive and that you need to ask forgiveness for. For the hatred that you have nurtured toward them. Let's just take a few moments and give you an opportunity to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed and to think through this command. Maybe strictly speaking, we're not guilty of that sixth commandment. But as Jesus is penetrating expansion of its true meaning, the the meaning behind it, let it bring us conviction here to the hatred that we might be nurturing toward others. And just offer that to God here in the next few moments. Oh, gracious, heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your righteous and holy and perfect law. We thank you for these ten commandments, knowing they were not just given to Israel there on Mount Sinai, but that these are part of your eternal moral law based in you being the creator and us being your creatures. And we thank you that in the fullness of your revelation coming in your son, that he taught us the real meaning behind this sixth commandment. And so, Heavenly Father, we bring before you the various ways that we would nurture hatred in our hearts toward, toward others. Mm-hmm. And so we'd ask for your forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And indeed, if any, has, if any others might have anything against us, we pray that you might bring forgiveness to them as well. We thank you that with you, there is grace and mercy. Mm -hmm. and We thank you that David, who was a man after God's own heart and a murderer, yet you forgave and put away his sins and that you did it by your son, Jesus Christ on the cross. And we thank you that the Apostle Paul is another example of a murderer. And yet, you put away his sins through that same cross. David's looking forward in faith to its anticipation. And Paul looking back at its completion. And likewise, we thank you that you forgive us. For the ways in which we have hated others we bring that before you and we pray this in jesus mighty and precious name and all god's people said amen Amen. Amen. and friends with this in mind we have the opportunity to come to this table to mark the forgiveness that we receive in christ friends this is the meal that jesus gave to us believers if you are not a believer This time is not for you, and there's no judgment. Stay in your seat. But if you are a believer in Christ, you are a member in good standing, uh, if not here somewhere, then you're invited to come to this table to mark the giving of the life of Christ in the offering of his blood for our forgiveness, the breaking of his body for our restoration. So I invite you to stand and I give give a prayer of thanks and then invite you to come to the table. Lord, we thank you for this food, this precious body and blood of Christ, our Lord. We thank you that this is not just remembering his work, but it in taking this in faith, it is a means of receiving your grace It's a way of being nourished with the truth of the gospel that our sins are forgiven in Christ. And we thank you that we could come together as your people to partake of this together. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Again, Titus. whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life.